Denver, Colorado. I'm your host, Eric Singular. We're sitting alongside president and founder of the Hoban Law Group, Bob Hoban. Today on the Hoban Minute, we're talking about tropicalizing cannabis, why it's not necessary to reinvent the wheel. And Bob and I are joined by Raymond Harari, the founder of Canalis Capital. Raymond, thank you for being here with us this afternoon. Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here, to be here at the Hoban Minute. And we're talking to you. You're down in Panama. Will you tell us a little bit about how things are uh, down south, what they've been like through this pandemic, and how you're holding up? Well, uh, like everything, everywhere in the world, uh, it's been a, a pretty shocking uh, event that hit us all by, by surprise. Uh, the government took some uh, a really aggressive approach initially. Um, they went ahead with a full lockdown shortly after the first case was detected, and they tried to ramp up on the testing to try and get more data. Um, they took a really interesting approach uh, that they divided the days where people could le- leave by gender. That way, having less people on the streets at the same time, they're decreasing chance of contagion. And they also took pretty strict measures on allowing people to leave, to leave the house on different times to do their essential tasks. That way you have less people on the streets thereby reducing uh, contagion rates. So as of now, uh, we've been in pretty much full lockdown for the past 10 weeks. Last week, the first block of of businesses other than essential services were opened up. So think um, mechanics, uh, online businesses, and sort of things like that that start moving. And hopefully the second one in a bit more uh, of freedom and and, uh, allowing us to to leave the house more um, by next week. So it's been it's been a different different times trying times, but hopefully we're going to get out of this soon and keep the, the infection rates down and be able to restart and repump the economy back to full speed. Oh, absolutely, and very interesting to hear how uh, Panama reacted to the the pandemic and the measures that they took. It's very different than uh, here in the states. Uh, and you were born and raised in Panama, and that has influenced a lot of your background. Particularly, you talk about tropicalizing ideas, and we're talking about specifically cannabis, bringing cannabis into Panama, bringing cannabis into Latin America. Will you tell us a little bit about your background, uh, your family's background, and how it ties into to this conversation? Sure. So I grew down here in Panama. Um, I am fortunate to be part of a family business. I'm on the fourth generation. And we are um, involved in a diverse uh, variety of industries. Uh, In in the core of our model is tropicalizing ideas. So not necessarily reinventing the wheel, but finding a model that has already proven to work in developed markets and bring it here and adapt it to the different cultures. Latin America is a really big market, but sometimes it gets sort of meshed into one. But there's really 600 million people, and there's a lot of different cultures and things to consider. So... Having been in the region and operating in different businesses for so long, we have built the relationships, the processes, and understand how consumers think in order to uh, put them together with a successful business technology brand or idea that has has proven to work elsewhere. Um, in the case of cannabis, uh, I believe there's a big potential to start educating Latin America further. Um, that's originally what brought me into exploring the space. Uh, 
because I think that the the potential of opening this 600 million person market and changing the stigma uh, will really, really benefit uh, consumers here. And that's obviously going to take a pro- be a process. It, it takes a bit longer for any technology, any trend to move downwards. And as cannabis starts moving downwards, uh, we need to be there to make sure uh, we shape it in the right way and make sure it's, it's beneficial for all. Well, well Panama, excuse me, Panama uh, has, a, has a place that's near and dear to my heart and that my grandfather uh, was in the U.S. Navy and uh, during the, the days of construction of the Panama Canal uh, was effectively responsible for uh, security for the workers uh, as, a, as a member of the Navy on a, a small boat in, uh, I believe it's Gatun Lake. Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, it, it's just a, a fascinating story how that unfolded. But I was in Panama City uh, a year ago, a little more, uh, in February for the uh, Canatech event and the Intercana Alliance events that took place uh, in the old city and, and met a lot of folks and I met a lot of people with a lot of interest. What do you see Panama's role in the evolving cannabis industry to be? Because the first perception from a lot of folks when those events were held there last year, not to suggest that they were the only events that have been held there, was that Panama, because of its banking uh, uh, history and, and the fact that it's attached to trade internationally, it's it's going to be a banking hub for Latin America in this space. Do you see that being the case or do you see it being something beyond or in addition to that? So I think that definitely is an aspect. Uh, I do think there's additional and there's facts beyond in different ways to, to cut it. So looking at Panama, it has been seen um, for the past uh, centuries. It's been a trade hub and logistics hub. By its strategic location, it's always been close to everywhere in the world and has access to both oceans uh, with very short distance in between, uh, which is what prompted the canal originally. Having the canal bolstered that uh, uh, um, geographic location and started giving it access to traffic of products all over the world. So from a logistics and distribution hub, if you're a cannabis company that's moving product globally, and you have different cultivation hubs, you have different extraction, manufacturing, packaging hubs, you may want to have a part of your supply chain located in Panama because of all those benefits and decreasing your cost. Additional to that, uh, you have a great tax-free zone and import-export zones that give you really good benefits to import products, do value add within that zone, and then re-export it without paying duties. So that gives some interesting benefits. Then there's the banking part, which Panama has a really robust banking system. Uh, I think it's going to need for the U.S. to legalize at a federal level because the biggest asset the banks here have is their corresponding bank relationships in the U.S. And they don't want to be looked at to be violating federal U.S. law. So they're going to be very careful until they do anything with cannabis, um, following in close steps the U.S., in, in my opinion. Um, and then having the U.S. dollar also comes in the financial part where you're mitigating your currency risk and having a stable currency to be able to trade your, your countries. And taxes and other benefits are, are really beneficial here, and it's a good hub to, to place your regional headquarters for Latin America. Uh, so that's uh, the interesting ways that I see Panama benefiting. Of course, it can be a consumer market as well. Uh, but from a higher level logistics standpoint, the logistical, financial, and tax benefits um, are stand out pretty strongly. 
Well, and, and to your point, it's, it's a good place to incorporate a, a, a business. If you're going to do business in Latin America, uh, Panama would be a, a good place to do it for a variety of the reasons you, you mentioned. Um, I had an opportunity to review some potential legislation and comment on it uh, that was being run uh, through the legislature in Panama. And it had to do with, uh, with the hemp side of the industry. And it talked about potentially authorizing up to 1.5% of THC content in industrial hemp. Um, what is the country's stance on hemp and how do you think that will position it for the future? So what I think is really beneficial that is happening with Panama is that the cannabis law and the hemp law are being treated separately. Uh, the cannabis law is being moved more through a process connected to uh, the health ministry, while the hemp law is being processed more through a system in the Department of Agriculture, the Ministry of, of Agricultural Development. So uh, they're, they're looked through, this, through very different optics. The cannabis law already passed the first debate, um, but it, everything was suspended uh, since COVID started. The hemp law was still in the preliminary phase, uh, but it looks very promising and has a lot of backers. Um, after we organized the conference, uh, you came to back in February, we had a really big shift um, in perception around the region because people had the chance to go to the first uh, conference they had been and saw what the industry really looked like. And that really, really helped break the stigma and start moving this forward and show the business opportunities that it could create. Um, so they're, they're both moving. Uh, COVID has definitely delayed things. But there is a possibility that the country considers using either of these laws for uh, recovery of, of COVID, because as you know, this can create a multitude of jobs, it can bring foreign investment, um, and it really makes sense to use this as policy. Um, so hopefully the government will, will take that into consideration, try to learn from neighboring countries and developed countries that are doing it, and advance this agenda, um, and really see the, the advantage of being a first mover in Latin America and position ourselves as a real hub for cannabis globally. Well, and, and to your point about the neighbors in that region uh, and using cannabis as a potential economic dri driver in this COVID scenario, we saw the president of Costa Rica uh, about a month ago come out in a standard address and surprisingly to most that were listening, talked about Canyamo or, or industrial hemp as being a, a an opportunity for uh Costa Rica to put itself on the map. And of course, that's your neighbor to the north for those of you that are geographically challenged out there. Um, but, but, but also we've seen Colombia turn around and say, we're going to allow a domestic market. Uh, we see Mexico finalizing uh, their positions on certain legislation. We saw the Brazilian market open up. We've seen a dramatic shift in LATAM as it relates to an export only cannabis model towards a domestic distribution model. Um, what prompts those changes? Are they simply economic-driven uh, economic discussions, or are folks beginning to realize that you know this can be both a medicine and a fuel and so many other things for the people within the country of Panama? I think that um, perception has really been evolving. Uh, cannabis has been seen as a prohibited substance and as something that's, that's very harmful for you. And when that's drilled to, to your head for so long, it's very hard to take, to take that out and see it as something beneficial in so many different industries and aspects, as we know, you know, plastics, medicine, 
uh, uh, food, you name it. So I think the, the first impression is, okay, that's not for us. Maybe it's for other places that use it and, and grow and see it as, as an economic part. But then when they start learning more about the healing aspects and the economic benefits and how you can be more ecological and, and all of the benefits we know of cannabis, I think they try to think how they can involve that into our own economy, not only on the job generation side, but how you benefit specifically from that. So I think that as as time goes on um, and, you know, things like COVID really make you, you know, sit down and, and rethink a lot of things. So it's a, a bit of a clean slate for for many, many different opportunities and new ideas are, are taken more seriously. So I think that's really prompt, prompted many uh, different um, jurisdictions around here to take different stances and try to advance that and not only be, be having the argument we always have, which is should it be legal or shouldn't be, but what is the most effective way to regulate cannabis for it to help us prosper further? Well, and I, I really liked that you brought up as we've been talking about the stigma in LATAM around cannabis, you mentioned the, these conferences. And the, these conferences don't look like you might think that they do uh, when you're looking at it through that stigma perspective of, oh, these are just a bunch of stoners when a bunch of businessmen show up wearing, uh, wearing nice suits. That's something we had talked about before. But I want to switch gears a little bit, and correct me if I'm wrong, Raymond. Uh, you worked with or have a relationship with uh, Lauren Gertner, the founder of Kronos. And I'm wondering, what did you learn from him specifically when we think about capital and we think about the opportunities for investment in a market like Latin America? What were some of the the things you picked up uh, from the time you spent with Lauren? So, wow, it's, it's hard to summarize in a sentence the stuff I've learned from, from Lauren Gertner. He's an amazing guy and so knowledgeable on this industry and on many industries that there have been a lot of a lot of lessons. Uh, what I would highlight is that he's really a pioneer and not scared of going to new territories. So when I first met him, he was raising money for Tokyo Smoke. And that was back in 2016. And Canada still didn't have a recreational program. And still then, he was open to coming down to Panama and start you know, explaining people here what cannabis was, talking about the opportunity, educating the consumer and showing them that this is really something with big opportunities. So he was he was not scared to break uh, boundaries of geography in a responsible way, start the education process and plant the little seeds that are going to bloom in the future. Uh, the impact that that has, uh, you know, getting exposure to Latin America uh, was was very big. Um, so I think that was a, a, a really strong lesson and, and something where, you know, you don't have to be afraid of, of new places. That's where the real opportunity is and where you can make the most impact. Um, so. Well, and talk a little bit more, if you would, as we think about capital, there's this idea of a red ocean and a blue ocean strategy. So a lot of the markets right now, and it's certainly a topic that we've touched on on the Hoba Minute before, but where is capital going with these markets that are saturated, like Canada, uh, potentially even the United States? What opportunities for investors do you think exist in Latin America as a market that has, for the most part, uh, really not even opened up yet? So... I think that the, the best lesson we can take from the Canadian experience is that bringing supply is not going to be the issue. 
the more difficult part is establishing reliable supply chains and building customers and customer loyalty. So when you start thinking about the customers, then it's a numbers game and you want to have scale. So you look at Latin America and you have 600 million people. It's Brazil, 220 million, which already has um, registration of CBD products for import, no cultivation, approved in the country. So this is a gigantic market that is just opening up. You have Mexico with 150 million people that will have local and, and export as well. But you're looking at a big, big consumer base. So before talking about production costs and any of that, you think, okay, how can I get products into these people's hands and have offtake contracts? So that's an interesting avenue uh, uh, to take. Then when you're looking at the production manufacturing side, you have, you're really in the, in the equatorial region in terms of cultivation and production. You know, most cut flowers that are sold um, in, in the Americas come from Colombia. So this is not that different than other produce or flowers. Um, so that, that makes sense from that aspect. And then uh, when you're talking about a race to the bottom, which was also what we saw in Canada, um, you want to be producing in, in cost-effective areas. So I think it makes a lot of, a lot of sense for, for different reasons to look at Latin America. I think that as com- companies grow, they're going to start thinking of a strategy where they have to optimize all the different parts of, of the supply chain, and they're going to have to expand their customer base. And maybe the whole company shouldn't be in Latin America, but you should definitely consider having a component of that, be it logistics, be it cultivation, or, or some, some component that really meshes into your strategy and helps you bring it up. So in terms of capital, I'd say, how can you think of building something that would work for a bigger company that they can buy, buy out? to uh, improve their supply chain or to improve their customer base. I think those are the two biggest drivers that Latin America can provide the industry and really, really add value to the bigger players. And then going to the red ocean and blue ocean strategy, um, red ocean would imply an ocean where there's blood and there's just so much competition that's saturated. That would be a a market with a lot of entrants and a lot of competition that's difficult to penetrate. And a blue ocean would be a market that is intact, but it's harder because there's no precedent, there are no regulation, the path hasn't been uh, uh, marked yet. So that job is a different type of difficulty, but it offers a, a big, big potential because you're impacting all these people and you have the market for yourself for a little bit. So I think taking into consideration that and trying to explore the opportunities with more potential, it, it's, it's something I would, I would consider for Latin America because we're still pretty blue ocean. Something that, that's not talked about very often because it is a fairly emerging policy change that I alluded to it a minute ago. It's the idea of not just creating product for the supply chain, as you mentioned, for export, but to service a domestic uh, demand. And I know every country is different. And I, I know that it's easy to talk about Latin America with a broad brush. And there are distinctions country by country, culture by culture. Uh, we get all of that. Uh, and I don't presume that you've gone out and, and looked at the consumer demand data, but w- maybe you have. But w- what's what? how do you perceive the demand, the consumer demand for cannabis products in Panama, uh, your, your home, and certainly uh, across the region? Because, you know, I've been told it's debatable that if you made, for example, adult use or recreational marijuana available, that people would ever deviate from their traditional, you know, uh, you know, black market or underground uh, sources. Uh, 
uh, and that as a medicine that would be run through a nationalized healthcare system, for example, that that might not be particularly attractive either. But then there's this rich history of use and certainly a rich history of use as it relates to what I'd call sort of homeopathic or family-based medicine. So I know I just threw a lot at you, but help me try to understand, help our listeners understand, what do you perceive the consumer demand for these products within Panama and across the region to be as things open up? So I think it's all a matter of perception and presentation. And it's really about how you approach it. And I'll give you the example of Colombia. They're not allowing any flower product to be commercialized within Colombia. Why? Because that will cause a certain connotation to smoking uh, and to the drug wars. And then the whole cannabis industry gets associated to that. So they took the approach of derivative products only. And then you're taking either drops or you're taking a, a, a capsule or an ointment. And that's what people start associating cannabis with. And it really gives them an, an evolved model. Um, if you think about uh, adult use and recreational, I think that if you do the model right in a responsible way and you make it attractive, high quality product to consumers here, because there's a fair consumption uh, in the region, they would switch. Um, it's a it's a difficult task. We have seen that in other markets, the 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 bridging from uh, the black market to the dispensary has has been a, a difficult one. Um, so I think it's about trying to to attract the customer and trying to appeal to what he's looking for. Um, and then really on the medical part, I think it really um, it would it go it would go like wildfire. Once you start having uh, testimonies and patients here that are getting healed and recovered by cannabis, um, as it's been the case in, in the States and other places that you have it, either in your family circle or in your community or in your country or at the very least in your language, and you have more activists coming, coming up and, and pushing the movement and trying to share the benefit that they've gotten out of the plant with the broader population, I think the medical part is is going to be very, very well accepted and people are going to be open to, to many treatments, treatments because as you said, um, homeopathic and plant medicine is, is quite prevalent in Latin America for a long time. So I think it's all going to be about the approach and how we put it forth and how we make sure that we present this as a new alternative and not associated to what they call, you know, marijuana, because that's not what this is. Well, Raymond... It's, uh, it's been fascinating to talk to you and certainly to get your perspective on Panama and how this is going to potentially shake out across the region. We'll definitely check in with you again soon once things get back to normal post-COVID. A lot of things, as you mentioned, have been put on pause and these uh, laws and regulations for cannabis and hemp in the Panama government as well. Uh, but we so appreciate you coming on here today and sharing your perspective with our listeners. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Eric. Thank you very much. Have a good evening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hoban Minute. Do you have any ideas for episode topics or guests? We would like to hear from you. Reach out to us at media at hoban.law and stay tuned for more on the Hoban Minute.